Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Let us ask now for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, we live in a world where there are so few who are willing to make this good confession, this good confession that Peter has made. How we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us the grace to make the confession ourselves, that it would be revealed to us from heaven, even as it was revealed uh, to your servant Peter uh, so long ago. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, that we might see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the more, and that we would be able to say uh, with the Apostle Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it is your power for salvation for everyone who believes. Father, we ask that you would work this faith in us. Where our faith is weak, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen it through the preaching of your word, that we, your people, might be comforted, that we might honor and praise your name, and that we might live according to the truth. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have been uh, with us, you'll, you'll know that we've, we've been, I've been preaching on the book of Matthew for uh, years. I think I, when I first started coming here, I was preaching on, in the book of Matthew. And if you've been with us, you remember that over and over again, you have heard me say, and I have said it uh, so many times that perhaps you're even uh, tired of hearing me say it, that everything in Matthew's gospel to this point is driving towards the confession of faith that Peter makes in this very passage. Um, this is truly a high point in the entire gospel. It is uh, one of the most significant passages in the gospel of Matthew, and I would say that in terms of um, significance, um, this is the, the turning point of the entire gospel, it is the climax of the, the midpoint of the gospel, and therefore to this point, this is sort of the, the culmination of everything that Matthew's been trying uh, to say to this point, has been trying to lead to this confession of faith that Peter makes, not just to record the confession, but that you might be led to make the same confession of faith. Everything in Matthew's gospel to this point 
has been leading to this profession of faith. And so if you look at Matthew chapters 1 to 4, what Matthew's doing is he's introducing the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, what he's highlighting is all the ways in which the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his infancy, his public appearance, his ministry as a whole, the way in which all those things fulfill the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament concerning him, that he is the Messiah. So all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, you'll know that in chapters 1 through 4, uh, Matthew quotes over and over again the Old Testament, this is to fulfill this, this is to fulfill this, this is to fulfill this. And the point then is to say in the introduction is that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, then in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew gives an overview of the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And the main summary and takeaway that the people have is that here is one who teaches as one who has authority. He's not like a scribe or a Pharisee. He is one who teaches like he has authority. That is, he is one who has the, uh, the great authority as the one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he performs many miracles whereby his, his authority is confirmed. And the implication of, of this is to say that he really has the authority to, to teach the way he did in chapters 5 through 7. Therefore, he truly is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, there, then in chapter 10, Christ sends out all of his disciples to make this particular message known. He gives his disciples the same kind of authority to do the same sorts of signs in order to authenticate this uh, message of the coming of the Messiah. In chapters 11 and 12, we then are told that by and large, people did not believe in Christ. That even though all these things were done to show that he really was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that yet by and large, people did not believe. Uh, Christ then explained in chapter 13 with the very various uh, parables of the kingdom of heaven, uh, why there is such a varied response to him and the nature of the kingdom of God uh, in light of that varied response. Then in chapters 14 to 16, we have been looking at uh, the way in which there are all kinds of different responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some recognize who he is, others do not. And at the beginning of chapter 14, in this, in this uh, longer section of the book of Matthew, uh, Herod, we, we see that Herod thinks that Jesus Christ is in fact John the Baptist. And Christ, when he asks his disciples here, you'll note that, he, they, he, that they tell him, well, some of them say John the Baptist and some will say other things, but then Peter makes the good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything in the first half of Matthew's gospel is meant to, to say this, there are many who will not make this profession of faith. You're not to be surprised by that. You're not to think, well, if other people aren't making the confession, then surely that means that Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not to say that. Christ has shown with overwhelming evidence that he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And though, though this person may say this and that person may say that, though some may say John the Baptist, though some may say Elijah or one of the prophets, you are to make this confession, the same confession that Peter has made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, another thing that shows the really great significance of this particular passage in the Gospel of Matthew is that there is an immediate shift after this passage, a complete change of focus. Everything to, the, to this point is about the identity of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and who is going to receive that, who's going to recognize that, and who's not. But once that this is established in Matthew's Gospel with Peter's confession of faith, then immediately there is, an, there is a shift of focusing on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that was almost wholly absent in the first half of Matthew's Gospel wasn't completely absent. It was hinted at with things like uh, the sign of Jonah that was given. And yet what we see is after Peter makes his confession of faith, 
Christ immediately is going to predict his own death. Then he's immediately going to call on his disciples to pick up their own crosses and follow him. So it is, and, and then even beyond that, between chapter 16 and when Christ enters Jerusalem in chapter 21, just a, sp a span of uh, four or five chapters, Christ will predict his death specifically three times. And it will be the focus of other passages as well. And then clearly then once from chapter 21, uh, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is clearly in the forefront of, uh, of the, the focus of uh, Christ's ministry. And that will then take us all the way to, to his death and the resurrection that comes in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, what we see then with regard to Matthew's gospel is that if you were to summarize the gospel, um, it is very, very similar to the summary statement of Christianity that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, that is who he is, and him crucified. This is really a summary of, of what we believe. We are to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and then we are to understand that it is this person who has died for the salvation of all of his people. And that further, that he is the one who was raised from the dead. Now, the reason this is so important to understand is because um, the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ can only really be seen truly and fully if you understand who it is who is dying. And I think this is part of the reason why Matthew's gospel is structured the way it is. You, you have to understand who Jesus is in order for the full significance of him saying that he's going to die for to really to truly feel the weight of that. It would be everyone dies, all people die, but to recognize that this one who died, this one who's predicting that he's going to be put to death in such a violent way and then be raised from the dead, that this one who died is not just any person. He is in fact the Christ, the son of the living God. And it is because of that that we can be saved from our sins. And so this, this text, there's really no way to overstate it. This text is crucial, is crucial for the understanding of Matthew's gospel. And what we see, the whole point is, as I've been saying, is for you to be able to make the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we're going to look at this text under two headings. We're going to consider um, the people's opinion of Jesus, so what the people generally say, and then we're going to consider what Peter said. So there is the confession that the people make in verses 13 to 14, but then there is the confession that Peter makes in verses 15 to 17. So there are, uh, there is what people generally think of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there is uh, the opinion that, that we are to have, the, the confession that we are to make of him, which is that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, now, Look with me again, then again at uh, verse thir verses 13 and 14 as we consider then what, what the people say of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as, as I've been mentioning, really from the end of chapter 13 to this point, what Matthew has been doing is highlighting the different kinds of responses that have been made to the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. And what we've seen in this section is actually quite surprising. Uh, those who are closest to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who um, should have known the best about who he is, they have by and large missed it. You think of um, the way that this section began with regard to uh, the end of chapter 13 with his Christ's own hometown. Um, so the idea is that his own hometown, uh, the ones who grew up with him, you, you would think if anyone were to believe, it would surely would be those from his own hometown. By and large, they don't believe. Uh, then we have uh, Herod. It's not surprising that he doesn't believe. But then we have the religious leaders, the Pharisees. This, this section of Matthew's gospel is marked by 
um, incredibly great opposition between the uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees on one hand, on the one hand, and the Lord Jesus Christ on, on the other. And what, what we see is that, that they have maintained their opposition and rejection of him. Uh, those who you would think would be the first to come to Christ are actually the last. And they're actually not going to come at all, it doesn't seem. Um, those who are closest to him in his own hometown and the religious leaders who knew the scriptures, they have failed. And yet, what Matthew has highlighted even further is that those who are the least likely to understand who Jesus is, who appear to be the farthest out, they are the ones that make the best professions of faith. And this is, would be seen first and foremost with the Canaanite woman's confession in chapter 15, of uh, the one who is not even a part of the people of God. Uh, and uh, you know Jesus even calls her a, a dog, if you remember, as, as the text goes. She doesn't take offense to that. She simply uh, humbly pleads for mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. She has uh, no pride or arrogance at all, and uh, her faith is characterized by great humility. Now, the, the point of all of these differences with regard to the reception of the Lord Jesus Christ, the point that is being made in this section as a whole is to show that true faith is not a matter of being born into the right people. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of anything within man. It is a matter of sovereign grace. It is granted by grace. And uh, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says in chapter 11 as well. We see that in the parables of the kingdom. Uh, but what, what he says in chapter 11 is that he praises the Father for revealing these truths, the mysteries, the, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, revealing it to little children and yet hiding it from the wise and the understanding. And this is what we see generally happening in this section. Um, the focus of chapter 13, uh, of verse 13, is on particularly the people as a whole. And from their response, we see that even though the people all throughout this section have a generally positive attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ, you think of the, the, the healing of the, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000 is in this section. Um, the people are generally holding him in regard, they're coming to him for healing. And yet, what we see from what Christ says here and what Peter says and what the disciples say about what the people generally are saying is that they do not really understand who Jesus is. They have a generally positive attitude towards Christ. They're willing to say that he is a good person, even a great person in some regards, but they, but they do not generally make the confession you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, um, what they say, you'll note, is they say things like he's John the Baptist. Perhaps he's like John the Baptist. He's Elijah. Perhaps he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But the question in light of all this is, do they believe that he is more? Do they believe that he is merely like Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets? Or is he... Uh, or is he greater than that? Uh, now, um, it's important to note with regard to the people's opinion that there is no necessity for there to be an obstacle to their making a full confession. Um, there was, at this time, generally a, a great messianic expectation among the Jews. There were others who had claimed themselves to be a messiahs and the people had gone after them. There was this anticipation that you know, perhaps the Messiah would come soon, and there were people who were looking uh, for the Messiah. And so in light of that, uh, we, we can't say that, that the people just didn't have any conception of the Messiah coming. 
uh, they recognized that the Messiah could even be coming. They saw the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are concluding something different than that this is, in fact, the one who is promised. They're concluding, in general, this is someone who's great, but in light of all that we're seeing, we are not sure, actually, that this is truly the Christ, that this is truly the Messiah. Now, with regard to Christ's question, um, clearly in the passage, we are meant to contrast the response of the people with the response of Peter. There's, there's clearly, the people are saying one thing, and note, it's not, it's not entirely negative. It's generally positive. But we're meant, to under, we're meant to understand that their profession of faith is not adequate. This is to say it is not adequate merely to say that Jesus is a great person, that he is a great prophet, that he is like Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist. Notice here, um, the profession of faith of the people generally does not exceed that of Herod. Remember that this section of Matthew's Gospel begins with Herod saying, I think this is John the Baptist. And the point we are to recognize with chapter 14 is that that is completely wrong. It is, it is not sufficient. It was not sufficient to help Herod at all. It, it was, he remained in his sins with that profession of faith. And the point then that is being made with regard to this, these, this inadequate profession of faith is that, brothers and sisters, it is simply not enough in any day to have a general respect for the Lord Jesus Christ, to think that he is a great person, but then to fall short of worshiping him and serving him as God. Um, this, it is simply not sufficient. And this is significant for us today, as is in every age. Um, there, there is in our day a growing opposition to Christianity that is uh, clear and obvious. However, um, even in our country, there is still a, uh, some amount of general respect for Christ. That, that There are many who would say, um, I don't like the church, I don't like Christianity, but I'm not going to say Christ is a terrible person. I'm surely not going to say that. I respect Jesus. I think he's a good person. Others will say things like, um, you know, the church is way off base, but Christ is, is good. Christ is good. Wait, I, 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 I can speak all kinds of negative things about Christians, but I will never say anything bad about Christ. So there, there's this general positive attitude. I'm not going to submit myself to coming to the church and being a member of the church and that sort of thing, making a full profession of faith, but, but I will at least have some amount of respect for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point that is being made here in Matthew's Gospel is that such a profession of faith is not adequate. It is not saving. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ says in chapter 12, verse 30. And this is an amazing thing, uh, uh, thing to think. Um, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me is against me. You, you either make a full profession of faith and give Christ everything, or else Christ counts you as an enemy, not just a neutral friend. There, the point with the Lord Jesus Christ is, it's, is there is no such thing. The reason is because the claims that he makes are too ultimate. He is God. If, if he is God, then, it, then you, you cannot simply say, well, I'm going to respect you and then it go no further. I'm going to say that you're great in some way, but I'm not going to serve you. If, if he is the Christ, the son of the living God, there is implicitly in, in that claim a demand for everything you are. And if you give less, if you, if you say less of Christ, then what Christ is saying is it's just, it's, it's not enough. You are in fact against me. 
in this sense, in this sense, there is this, this absolute uh, division that can be made with the Lord Jesus Christ that can be made of no other person. Um, it is possible to not be for me and yet not be against me. I'm just a, a normal person. And the same thing would be true of you. But it is not possible with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, there is no middle ground with regard to respecting the Lord Jesus Christ and yet not coming to him. If you are to be saved from your sins and to have a profession of faith that goes beyond that of Herod, you must profess what Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, that is, uh, that is what, what we are to understand by this text. It is insufficient to give the response of the people generally. Remember, uh, this people with this insufficient response that appears to be positive, they will, in just a few short chapters, just, you know, just, uh, you know, 10 chapters-ish, they're going to put Christ to death. They, their opposition to him will be fully revealed, and it's because of this principle. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot just have respect. At some point, the enmity will come out because there can only be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the, of the serpent is always against the singular seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. And therefore, the generally positive attitude towards Christ eventually gives way to calling for him to be put to death. And such is the pattern of the way it always is. Uh, therefore, therefore, we are to take the profession of faith that Peter makes as the correct profession that we ourselves are to follow. So Christ asked Peter in light of this response that they give concerning the people, uh, you know, the people may say this or that, but who do you say that I am? Now, um, one of the things that you, you may note, if you remember that after the episode of the walking on water in uh, this very section at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 14, that the disciples actually do, in what's meant to be a, a preliminary passage that points to this one, they actually do profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So they've already given part of this confession of faith uh, already. Uh, the reason why this is so significant in this context is because it is one thing for a, a group of people to profess that Jesus is the Son of God when they're all alone and they've just seen Christ walk on water. Uh, that, that's a, a natural response that people are going to have. They're, they see there's no opposition from anyone else, and they just see a man walk on water in the middle of the night. They're absolutely terrified. They fall down and they profess, truly, this, truly you are the Son of God. Now note, the situation that they're in now is a good bit different. There is no miracle happening. There's, there's no, there's, they're just looking at a normal man. They're looking at a, a normal, who, a person who appears to be normal. And they've just told Christ that basically nobody else has this profession of faith. They just told Christ that, look, so many other people are saying so many other kinds of things. It's in that context then that Jesus asks, okay, people are generally saying this about me, but in that context, what do you say? What do you say? Are you willing to make a profession of faith when nobody else is? Are you willing to make a profession of faith when everyone around you is saying that Jesus, he may be good or whatever, but you're, not, you're, gonna, you're gonna follow him with your entire life? That isn't, isn't, is that not foolish? When, when, when nobody else will, what, and you, and you recognize that, in that context, what do you say? And that's the reason, that's the reason why Peter's profession of faith is so great. Because he says, after, uh, th there may be none. There may be none else. They all may be saying that you're Elijah, 
John the Baptist or whatever else, but I actually do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And brothers and sisters, this is where it is so significant because this is the context that we all find ourselves in with regard to our, our own lives. Um, the way is always broad that leads to destruction. You'll always be able to find many people who don't profess this faith. You, and they'll always give all kinds of reasons for it. And, you, you, and it may be tempting to say, you know, if nobody else is believing, then could it really be true? Notice, that's, that's the same thing that's happening in Matthew's gospel. The Jews, the very people of God, the, the ones for whom all the promises were made, they are by and large not believing. Does this mean that Jesus is not the Messiah? Will you make the profession of faith when it appears that nobody else is? And Peter is saying, uh, just as he says in another place in John's gospel, Lord, where else will we go? Uh, you alone have the words of everlasting life. Um, it may be that all others leave and Christ may ask, are you going to leave too with all these others that are leaving? But the, but the answer that is to be given is no, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I will walk on this narrow path this narrow path that you have laid out because it is true, because, because what Christ has shown of himself is sufficient for faith. It's sufficient for us to recognize that he is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, this is the requirement, brothers and sisters, that he gives um, earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Those who profess Christ before men, those who profess him before men, Christ will profess that person before his Father in heaven. But those who deny Christ before men, because they see what everyone else is saying and they just go along with that, those who deny Christ before men, Christ says, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. What is required is in the context of everyone else saying whatever else they may say, you saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's what Peter does here. Uh, now, the, the real meat of this is understanding what Peter is actually saying. What, what is he saying? What, what is he actually declaring when he is declaring that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God? You'll notice that there are two things that he's, he's saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, Christ and Son of God. Those are the, the, the two things that he is saying of him. Now, with regard to the first one, the word Christ, it's important to recognize that um, Christ is just a Greek word that means anointed. Messiah is just a Hebrew word that means anointed, and they are the same thing. So when, when, when Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ, what he is professing is that Jesus is the promised Savior of the world, the one who would restore Israel and bring salvation to the nations. He is the anointed one promised in the Old Testament, and as the anointed one, therefore, he is professing that Jesus truly is the great prophet, priest, and king, the, the last of all the great prophets who goes far beyond them all, the last of the great priests who opens the way to God fully, and the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, the, 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 these are the offices in the Old Testament that were always the anointed offices. Uh, if you were to be anointed, it was because you were being put into place as either a prophet, a priest, or a king. And therefore, what Peter is confessing of the Lord Jesus Christ here is that Jesus truly is the prophet like Moses, as is taught in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the one who would perfectly reveal God to his people, the one whose coming would also bring about the outpouring of the Spirit, whereby all would know, from the least to the greatest, who God truly is. He is the one who does not just reveal the word outwardly, but the one by whom even the new heart will be given, such that the knowledge of God is sovereignly placed 
in the heart, that they might love God and not fall away from him. He is the one who, just like Moses, will lead the people out of their exile away from the presence of God and uh, back into God's presence. He is uh, the, the one who has the way of access to God, a, a better access to God, that goes far beyond any of the other prophets uh, of the Old Testament. In a world that is trapped in the darkness of the ignorance of God, Peter is confessing by saying that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the light whereby the knowledge of God will pervade all things. That is what he is as a prophet. Uh, Peter is also confessing that Jesus is the priest. Uh, now, what we see from what happens in the next uh, passage, in, in the rest of Matthew chapter 16, is that uh, Peter clearly does not understand the full significance of Christ's death. But uh, by confessing that Jesus is the priest, he is confessing that Jesus is the one by whom we make our approach to God. That in, in some way, Jesus is going to be the one who will cleanse from sin. It is by him that access and uh, access into God's presence will be restored. It will be by him that atonement will be made for the sins of the people. And therefore, in a world that is exiled from the presence of God due to the guilt of sin, Peter is confessing that Christ is the way of return, that Christ is the way of return as the priest. Now, Peter is also confessing that Jesus is the king. He is the one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would be given the throne of his father David, whose kingdom will have no end, who will build the house of God, and who would bring in the new creation. He is confessing that Jesus Christ is the one who will be given all the nations, that he will rule them with a rod of iron, that the nations will come and bring tribute to his feet, and that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is confessing that Christ rules as king and will rule and defend his people and bring them into perfect peace. In a world that is filled with enemies and under the power of Satan, what Peter is confessing is that Jesus is the one who will defeat all of these enemies and bring his people into that peace that will last for all time. And in him, we will have rest from all of our enemies all around, that as Zechariah said with the birth of his son John, that we will be able to serve God without any fear. Uh, that is what Peter is confessing when he says that Jesus is the Christ. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king, the one promise in the Old Testament who would come and bring about the culminating salvation, the consummating salvation in which all of God's people will be saved. This is what it means to confess that Jesus is the Christ. It means to confess that your hope for knowing God, your hope for the forgiveness of sins, your hope of access to God, your hope for peace and deliverance from all enemies are found only in the Lord Jesus Christ that all of those things are found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king, anointed not by another man with oil, but anointed by the Father with the Spirit, that he might, as Matthew says at the beginning of his gospel, as his, as his very name means, Jesus, save he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. His name is salvation. That is what Peter is confessing when he says that he is the Christ. All of the expectation, all the expectation of everything that the prophets have said, all of them are culminating in this very person. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, you'll note, this is not the only thing that, that Peter says of Jesus. He also says, you are the son of the living God. 
Now, there are some who think that um, the, the title Son of God means nothing more than Christ. The idea is that it means exactly the same thing. And others will say that, you know, it, it can't mean anything more than, uh, it certainly cannot mean that he is fully God. And yet, um, there is actually evidence, there's actually reason to believe that there were those who uh, were around before the coming of Christ who actually understand that there was some kind of plurality in the Godhead, that there was a, a, a kind of sonship that was divine and that made the Son of God equal to the Father. We see this uh, particularly in the book uh, First Enoch, a book that was written before the, the coming of Christ. And uh, I think uh, there have been some authors and scholars who have even argued that um, the, the faith that is put forward in the book of Enoch, particularly in the, the similitudes, as it's called, um, is in fact at least a binitarianism. It's at least a confession that there are two persons in the Godhead with there being one God. Um, that, there is a, that there is at least a father and a son. Now, so the, 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 the idea, the concept of Peter being able to profess that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God in the highest sense, therefore should not be uh, excluded out of hand. Further, it's important to recognize that this is very clearly the meaning in Hebrews 1. When uh, the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1 teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, what he does is he compares the, the meaning of Son of God to that of the angels. And the point is that Son of God, Son, is a completely separate category from angel. It's not, he's not the highest of the highest of the spiritual beings that God has made. If he is Son, then he is completely different. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And when he brings the firstborn in, into the world, he says, therefore let all of God's angels worship him. And in light of this, then, he is the God who has been anointed by God with the spirit of gladness and who has an everlasting kingdom because he is the one who has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That even when all of, of creation uh, fades away, that he is the one who is there because he has no beginning and he has no end. There will be no end to his years ever. And that's what uh, the author is saying is the meaning of Christ being the Son of God of God. This is what it means for him to be uh, the Son of God. We, we've actually seen this uh, in a number of places in Matthew's Gospel where the miracles that Christ does uh, are meant to, to uh, give this very meaning that, you know, who else can, who else treads upon the water? In the Old Testament we are told it is God. What, what, what kind of man is this then that even the winds and the waves obey him? The point is that you are supposed to recognize God. The winds and the waves obey God. And therefore, if he can command the winds and the waves, if he's commanding the demons, if he's opening the eyes of the blind, if he's doing these sorts of things, you're to recognize that he is a divine person. And what Peter is doing is he's seeing these things and he's saying, you, you are the Christ. You are the promised Savior of the world. And as such, you are also the Son of the living God. That is to say, when we speak about Son of God in an ideal sense, to, to confess that Jesus is the Son of God is the same thing as confessing that He is God the Son. There, there's no difference between uh, the meaning of, of those two phrases. There is a lesser sense in which Son of God is used, which it applies to you and me. But when we speak of it ideally, as we apply it to Christ, we are saying Son of God is the same as God the Son. And that is the very thing that Peter is confessing. So just backing up, what, what is Peter saying of Christ? There might be others who say all these other things, but he is looking at a man who has no outward form or majesty whereby we might be attracted to him. And he's saying, I believe on the basis of what you have said and what you have done, you are the Christ. You are the savior of the world. 
and you are the Son of God. You are worthy of all praise and honor and worship. And I am giving that to you. I believe that of you. And I will follow you as such. Brothers and sisters, uh, this is the profession of faith. Everything, everything in Matthew's gospel is meant to teach you that you are to make the same profession of faith. Again, the, the disciples asked this after Jesus uh, calmed the sea. The question was asked, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Brothers and sisters, the answer is this, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, we are living in a time when the love of many is growing cold, a time when there are very few who are willing to make such a profession of faith. And if we were to take a poll of, of people generally today, uh, what do you think about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? There are very few who would be willing to say this. The question is this, will you make this profession of faith as one who is not ashamed of the gospel? And, the, and if you do, then note the benediction that is given to Peter in verse 17. Blessed are you, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And brothers and sisters, this is the benediction that is held out to you. If you make this profession of faith, such are you. You are blessed by God. This great and glorious truth to the saving of your soul has been revealed by the Father. May God grant you the grace to find such a blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, how we do praise you and worship you, declaring that your Son is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us, O oh Lord, to make this full profession of faith that we might follow him all the days of our lives, not something else less, not something inadequate, Lord, but truly believing that your son is in fact who he says he is, that we might find life in his name. For his name is Jesus, salvation itself, that he might save his people from their sins. Lord, grant us this grace. Gr grant us this grace, we do pray, uh, for the sake of your son that he might have a bride, beautiful and glorious, who loves him and who recognizes his glory. For Lord, you do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72 cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, 
and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, There's a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.